Thank you for tuning in to the Radio Bible Course. We're beginning the text of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 today. After having given considerable background in the past several days, in yesterday's program we read Acts chapter 17, which records Paul's visit to Thessalonica, which is in Greece. He went there with Silas and also with Timothy. And his visit caused an uproar because he preached about Jesus being the Christ. It's interesting that one of the charges against Paul and Silas as they preached was that they were preaching that there is another king, Jesus. Now, they said that to the authorities, so the authorities would take action against Paul and run him out of town, which was the case. But why did they say that Paul had preached that Jesus is another king? Because Jesus must be preached as the king. He came to be the king of the Jews, and Paul, when he went to the synagogue, could not avoid talking about Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, to whom the kingdom was promised. So, of course, there was that kingdom message involved in the preaching of the gospel. Of course, the Jews had rejected Jesus as their king, and then Paul, of course, was talking here in the synagogue about how Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. And not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. Well, there were Gentiles in that synagogue. They were Greeks, who found discouragement and disappointment with the pagan religions and wanted something substantial. And they found Jews had something. They had historic documents. They had the scriptures upon which they were relying. And there were intelligent Jews who could prove that their scriptures must have come from God because there were fulfilled prophecies that no man could have ever predicted. Now, Paul, in referring to those scriptures, proved that Jesus was the Christ. He associated Jesus with those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And then, many people responded to it. Now, Paul did not need to prove that Jesus would be a king. The Jews knew that. But he had to prove that Christ would suffer. There are people today who look at the death of Christ as a tragedy rather than the fulfillment of prophecy. And I remember my religious training as a boy. I was encouraged to feel sorry for Jesus having suffered and died. That instruction somehow implied to me that if I felt sorry for Jesus, then God would sympathize with me and take a liking to me. But the New Testament never asks people to feel sorry for Jesus. It never asks us to grieve about the cross. It asks us to believe it because that's where our victory was won. Jesus had to suffer. It was predestined to be that way. And Luke writes about that in Acts chapter 4 that God predetermined the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone tell you that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a tragedy. The Reverend Moon believes that. 
the Bible tells us it was God's will. And Jesus himself came to do God's will, which meant go to the cross and pay for the sins of the whole world. After leaving Thessalonica, Paul went to Berea, then found his way to Athens, and the next chapter in the book of Acts, that is, Acts 18, tells us that Paul left Athens for Corinth, where he was met by his companions Timothy and Silas, and they brought good news about the Thessalonian church. The result was that Paul wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians. And that's where we turn now to continue our study. The opening of the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians reads, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. By the way, Silvanus is another name for Silas, who was there with Paul. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brethren, beloved by God, that he has chosen you, for our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This letter is addressed to the church of the Thessalonians. What is church? Well, the word church simply means assembly. It's not even a religious term in the Bible. The Greeks used it to refer to a mob or to refer to the city council. But once people had believed in Jesus Christ, they became a distinct group as far as God is concerned. They were God's assembly. So he addresses this letter to the church. By the way, the New Testament letters are not addressed to the world. The standards of good living, of love, of good works, which are taught in the epistles, are not for the world. Those are teachings for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And we ought not to impose these standards upon those who do not believe. The world is viewed by the Bible as a dark place. But Christians are children of light. And the darker the world gets, the brighter the Christian ought to shine. He ought to shine with purity, sincerity, and love. That's something you may not find in the world all the time, but we ought to find it in the church. Now, he said the church was in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are two distinct persons. God the Father was addressed by Jesus himself while he was on the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed to the Father in heaven. And he said he came to do the Father's will. Jesus was concerned about the Father. He came to speak for the Father. He said he came from the Father and would return to the Father. But now verse 1 also says, The church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is a distinct person, and the Bible teaches that there are persons in the Godhead. Here we have the Father, and we have the Son, who is also known as Jesus Christ. Now, later, in verse 5, we'll read about the Holy Spirit, who is still another person. The Bible teaches this. While it never uses the word Trinity, that's something theologians have given us, the Bible does teach the three personalities of the Godhead. And so, Paul, having addressed the church, then says in his greeting, Grace to you and peace. Now, grace has to do with that which causes joy. It has the meaning of favor and kindness. Then it moves on to God's gift to man in regard to salvation. And finally, the word grace incorporates the attitude of thankfulness. Most of us know that latter meaning because we often come to the table and call on someone to say grace. That means to give thanks to the Father. In addition to grace to you, Paul says, and peace. Now, peace doesn't mean, I hope you don't get clobbered by someone. Instead, it means, I pray that you may prosper with a well-rounded life. Paul's desire for the Thessalonians is that they experience not only the grace of God, but the peace of God. In verse 2, it's apparent that Paul prayed for his converts. He writes, We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Well, Paul had concern for them. He made an investment in them when he presented the gospel and they became God's children by faith. So these people then belonged to God. And they were in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, being a servant of Jesus Christ, had to be concerned with the things that were of Christ. So, he gives, first of all, a prayer of thanks. And that's a sign of maturity. Young Christians often pray for things. They ask for comforts and blessings for themselves. And the longer a person lives with God... And the more he understands the scripture, the more frequently he will pray by giving thanks. Paul said he constantly mentioned them in his prayers. And here's what he remembered. He said, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I call your attention to these three activities of these people, or characteristics, I should say, the work of faith, a labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. What does he mean by the work of faith? I don't think this can refer to good works, because good works aren't a proof of faith. Unbelievers can have good works, and I thank God for the many unbelievers who have been generous in our community. Many of them had built hospitals, parks, 
libraries. Many of the good things that we enjoy are the result of a gracious spirit on the part of people who are not even Christians. I think the work here might refer to actions that prove their faith. It's like Abraham's actions that proved his faith. And so James could write that Abraham was justified by works, not when he believed God, not when he did good works, but when he offered his son Isaac. He was willing to do that, to sacrifice his own son in obedience to God, because he so believed that God would keep his promise that if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. That's a faith work. Now there's further evidence in chapter 1 of what kind of work Paul may be referring to, and that's in verse 8. He writes, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not to say anything. Now, this, I think, is what Paul is referring to. These people believed so strongly that they told everybody in that whole area. They were preaching the gospel, even though they weren't licensed to preach or ordained to preach. It doesn't require that. Once you know the good news, you'll want others to have the good news, and that's what they did. So they had faith in God. Paul was not even needed, he said, because they so adequately covered that whole territory with the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to our program today. If you benefited from it, please tell a friend. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavoda, reminding you that the word gospel means good news.